Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Good morning. If you've not met me before, my name's Peter and uh, please pray with me as we just get straight into God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for its clarity. Help us to understand it, uh, and more than that, to take it in and follow it. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Look, I do want to talk to you today about questions, uh, important questions. In fact, beyond that to the most important question. Because sometimes it's easy, I think, to get confused be- between important and most important. Uh, it can easily happen when you think about just Christianity. Uh, at the heart of the Christian faith, is the person of Jesus, which means that the key to the Christian faith is, who do you think Jesus is? That is a critical question, isn't it? It's actually a critical question that the Bible keeps asking us again and again. Jesus himself will speak to his disciples and say, who do the crowds say I am? Who do you say I am? A critical question. But... I want to suggest to you that it's not really the most important question with the Christian faith. In fact, it can be a problem question. I think you do need to ask that question. It's important and you do need to answer it. I'm not, I'm not suggesting you don't do that. But there is a danger with that question because it can give you the impression that it's our opinion of Jesus that is the, most, that is the important thing. It can give the impression that somehow God is waiting for us, for for us to make up our own decisions about what we think about Jesus. But the real Jesus that emerges through these eyewitness accounts of the Gospels, of Jesus' life, you know, there's four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. The real Jesus that emerges through the pages of the New Testament is so much greater and so much larger that when we see how big he is, we begin to ask a different question. I think the most important question And the question is not, what do we think of him? The most important question becomes, what does he think of us? I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this for you as we begin this morning. The best I can come up with is a story from about yonks ago in our family life, over a decade ago, when our kids were much younger. Uh, This would cost me $5, this uh, illustration, because I haven't warned my son about it. Um, We took our kids to Taronga Zoo. Uh, back when Ethan, who is, uh, is, some of you will know him, my son Ethan, he was about two years old. And we were in this downstairs section. Um, there's a lion's den or a lion's pen. And there was a downstairs section uh, where you could go down below. And they had this window right at kind of ground level. So you could stand in, the, in this um, subsection and your eye level was right at ground level where the lions were. And, and we were there, and of course, it's not just an open window, it's a big, thick pane of glass, right? And, and we were there this day, and uh, the, the, what is it, the alpha male of the pride, he just happened to be sitting right at the window. And there's, our, there's Ethan, he's two years old, you know, tiny little hands, and he's just slapping the window right where the line was. And uh, Ethan was fascinated, he was fascinated by it, and he captures the attention of this line. And the lion gets up. And honestly, the lion likes what he sees. And he takes notice of Ethan. And in his head, it's pretty clear, he's thinking dinner. He's thinking dinner. And this lion, he just gets up and he starts strutting around and he is roaring. 
Like you want to hear the lion's roar when you go to a, go to a, um, go to the zoo, right? This lion, he is, and not just once, on and on. He is like eye to eye with Ethan, with like inches of glass between them. And um, just let me get this sorted. I'm a bit stuck. I'm hopeless with mics, aren't I? There we go. Uh, inches, inches between it, and it doesn't just caught our attention. It's a caught, it's caught lots of people's attention. Lots of people are coming down and looking at it, and this lion is just licking his lips, strutting around, roaring at our son, just inches away from him. And the thing that interests me is that in one context, in one context, lions are an object of our interest, and we think, yeah, they're beautiful animals. And we're confident they're powerful and they're lovely to have in our environment. And in one context, they are just merely an object of our interest and we have our opinions about them. But in another context, if the glass wasn't there or it's outside the zoo and you're in the wild now, we become the object of their interest. And that can be far more terrifying. You see, at a, at a distance... Jesus can be an object of interest. Who do you think he is? Really important question. Well, as a man in history, you go through the documents, you reflect on who he is. He's an object of our interest. But in another context, the real Jesus, the man of power and authority, the man who holds the keys to death and eternal life, the, the man who one day we will all stand before and he will come out from behind the glass, so to speak. And it won't matter anymore what we think of him. What will matter is what he thinks of us. And this is a deeply sobering truth, I think, that comes out through the pages of the New Testament. And in this chapter, in this, in this, little, this, this chapter we're looking at today in Matthew, it becomes obvious what he does think of us. And it becomes obvious as he exposes really to the Pharisees and the chief priests and the religious leaders of the day it becomes obvious what he thinks of them as he dismantles them in their view of him. But in the process, as he dismantles them in their view of him, he also will dismantle us and see through us as well. And as he does this, he will do this through a series of parables where he'll expose our heart and begin to help us see what he thinks of us, the most important question and it's important for me to be upfront like that because we're coming to two parables of jesus this morning and parables often people think they're nice stories of a heavenly message and yeah but they are they're not just designed to be stories nice they're designed to put you on the spot that's what parables are meant to do they they expose people's hearts jesus tells them to bring out what's inside people to help them see the reality of what's going on to force them into a moment of decision which they might not have been aware of before. And so today, as we begin to look at these two parables, sure, the religious leaders are going to be put on the spot. But we too are likely to be put on the spot with our hearts exposed and the need to make serious decisions. Well, let's go to the first parable. Come with the first parable we're going to look at. It's there in chapter uh, 21. Matthew chapter 21, we're going to pick it up at verse 33. It's called the par- well, often called the parable of the tenants. Jesus says, verse 33, he says, listen to another parable. There was a landover who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. Now notice verse 34 starts with harvest time. Look at verse 34. When the harvest time approached, 
He sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized the servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. He came looking for a harvest. He came looking for fruit, but he found none. Now, if you were here last week and you got your ears still on, you might be thinking, oh, it sounds like the fig tree. Came looking for a harvest and found none. But God tries again. Look at verse 36. It says, Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. It's a pretty easy story to follow, isn't it? Very easy to, to, um, to get your grip on what's going on here. And I think even more simple for the original listeners. Because uh, if, you, if you were listening when uh, Isaiah 5 was written, uh, so when Isaiah 5 was read just a few minutes ago, you know, in the Old Testament, Israel was depicted as the vineyard. And Jesus picks up this same kind of image with this landowner who owned a vineyard and rented it out to some farmers. And, and you ought to be, as you, as you, as you, as you hear the, the story of this landowner and his vineyard, you ought to be thinking about that group of people he gave it to and just how generous he was. See, God didn't give his people you know, a coal mine to work hard in and produce some fuel. No, he gives them a vineyard, a place where they can work, a place where they can find employment, where the fruit of their work is not just kind of some grubby fuel that you can sell to someone else, but, but something that you can make wine out of and enjoy. And even a wine press is provided for them. Security as well, a watchtower. There's this generosity of the landowner here. So much generosity that you, you ought to be asking the question, honestly, what more could have been done for this group of people to get them to produce a harvest? Thank you. What more could have been done? And yet at harvest time, at harvest time, let me just put that there. When the landowner sends to get simply what is owed to him, they refuse it and they seize the servants and they beat them and they even kill them and murder them. Now, if you were the landowner, at this point of time, you'd be pretty ticked off, just as an understatement. He, what more could have been done and yet they, they, they don't produce a harvest? But before he does something about it, before, he's, before he does something, look at, he gives them one last chance, despite their outrageous behaviour. Look at verse 37. Matthew 21, verse 37, it says, Last of all, he sent his son to them. They'll respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the tenants? They even kill the landowner's son. And then the question becomes, you see, and Jesus deliberately asks it, he says, what will the landover do? And notice before Jesus answers the question, he, he throws that over to the crowd. He says to them, what, what do you think the, the landowner should do? I think he's throwing it over to the crowd for them to feel the weight of this moment. It's for them to feel themselves the outrage. What should the landover do? What is the appropriate course of action for him to take? 
He wants you not to just intellectually have an opinion about what ought to happen. He throws it to the crowd so that they can feel the emotion of what ought to happen. When you have, what, what, how do you feel in your life when you see someone who's been so lavishly, generously treated, only to spurn that, only to, to respond to it in such an entitled way and respond in such obnoxious and, and, and abuse? What do you think should happen? Well, the crowd say in verse 41, he'll bring those wretches, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end. They replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at the harvest time. Feels fair to you? Feels fair to me. The one who they've given him so much, they treat him with such disdain. In a sense, they cannot, they cannot continue in this place of blessing anymore. They need to be removed from it. And Jesus thinks so too. In fact, he goes on in verse 42 to add to this conclusion that the crowds made. And he says to them, have you never read the scriptures? And he's about to quote another part of the scriptures. And if you've got, you know, I'd be thinking he's about to quote Isaiah chapter 5, where the vineyard was spoken about. But he doesn't. He actually quotes Psalm 118. And he says to the crowds, if you really want to understand what's going on here and the disdain that has been treated to the landowner, he says, let me quote Psalm 118, and he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. And that psalm he quotes is a reference. It's a reference to the idea of that there's this stone that, that, that there's this stone in a building, a keystone, a cornerstone. It's actually the most important stone in the entire structure. And the builders who are building a structure, this structure, in the psalm, the, those builders stupidly, arrogantly, foolishly toss aside the most important stone, dismiss it, only then to be found in the future foolish because it actually was the, the very keystone. And Jesus applies that in verse 43 and says, well, because those builders have been so foolish, just like in the parable, because those tenants had been so foolish and obnoxious, he says, verse 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And the Lord Jesus is saying here, as he applies it, he says, this stone is dangerous. This stone that you've rejected will crush you. The landowner will break you. And he's speaking of himself here. He recognises that in his own rejection of the religious leaders, that he himself is that stone that is being rejected. He is the son of a landowner that the landowner sent, that they are going to kill but in his death and in his resurrection, in his, him being raised back to life again, God has made him the cornerstone, the keystone, the key to, well, the key to the defeat of death and the key to eternal life, the key to forgiveness. He is the most internal, He is the most important stone, raised up to be the judge of the living and the dead. He is the roaring lion with the pane of glass removed. That well, no longer is of interest what we think of him, but what we must be concerned of is what this stone thinks of us. And I want you to imagine yourself in the crowd that day listening to Jesus tell this parable. 
Imagine if you were in that crowd that day and you were a truth seeker, that you really wanted to find out the truth, you really wanted to know the truth, and you are a humble person and you hear Jesus talking about a stone that the builders are going to reject and it's actually going to become the keystone, a stone that will crush those who reject it. And he talks about a group of people coming one day who will be hypocrites and they'll be faced with the true king and they will foolishly and stupidly reject him only to find that he really was the king they were waiting for. And if you're a humble person seeking the truth and you heard Jesus talk about that, what would you, what would you do? I reckon you'd, you'd hopefully pause and take stock and be careful. Could he be the one? But this, this crowd, they don't do that. They don't pause. They don't take stock. Having been exposed, what they do is rise up in verse 45 and 46 to seek a way to, re, to arrest him, to actually discard the capstone that will one day destroy him, ironically, exactly as it's been prophesied. Now, I don't know about you, but forced into that moment of decision to actually rise up and seek his arrest... Part of me reads that and I find myself going, what is wrong with these people? I mean, seriously, what is wrong with them? But then I look at myself and I look at my own heart and I do realise there is a kind of pride that, that I can have, that I think we all can have, that kind of means you get locked in to a way of looking at the world a way of understanding your place in the world, a place in the world that you may well take great pride in that can make it very hard for you to listen to it to someone else when you get challenged. So these people listening to Jesus, they had locked themselves into the view of being the rulers, that they just weren't tenants. They actually wanted to be owners. And now to have someone claiming to be the ruler over them threatened everything they thought about themselves. Threatened the kind of pride and status and position they thought they had. <coughs> Challenged them in such a way with that view of themselves that meant they weren't even willing to even entertain the ideas Jesus was saying. They wouldn't even let themselves listen. And I reckon that is being played out in our world every day. In our world right now, Jesus is still the keystone, the capstone. He still is the one who is the keystone for the whole universe. And that challenges our will, our world. And it challenges people. For many years it challenged me. Maybe even now it's challenging you. About who is the real ruler in your life. And it's sad that many people won't stop and take pause and listen. Because there really is so much at stake because he is the keystone. And as we're about to see in the next parable, there's so much at stake. Jesus will say, people will be thrust into utter darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing and teeth, which is another way of talking about hell. That's what's at stake. So why wouldn't you bother to actually stop and take pause and listen more carefully? It really matters to stop and take pause. And in fact, I think the second parable just underlines the urgency with which you must stop and take pause. So come with me to the second parable. Now at the start of chapter 22, Matthew, uh, Matthew 22. Jesus continued to go on. Look at verse, 20, uh, look at verse 1. Verse 1. 
Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Uh, this is a parable about, oh, it's pretty obvious, it's about a king. It's about a king who's got a son, his son's getting married. And Jesus says, uh, This is what the kingdom of God is like. In other words, he's saying, This is what our God is like, who is the king in heaven. He, what's he like? He's generous, he's not stingy, he's not a Scrooge. He's putting on a lavish banquet. He's invited many people to come. That's what he's like. And because he doesn't want people to miss out, when the wedding banquet is, is ready, even though the invitations have already gone out, he reminds people. So look at verse 3. It says he sent his servants to those who'd been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. And people who were listening to this parable, I think particularly the Jewish leaders at the time, if they had ears to hear, they ought to be realising that for hundreds of years, God has been sending to his people, the prophets, inviting Israel to his banquet. Uh, the kingdom of heaven, often in the Old Testament, is pictured as a banquet. It's a picture of the kingdom of God, a picture of heaven itself. And time and time again in the Old Testament, the prophets call Israel to prepare for it, to return to the Lord, to repent of their sins, to accept the invitation to get ready for the banquet. And in this parable, Jesus saying that day of the banquet, it's that day of spoken of, that day's arrived. And so God is actually sending his servants out to tell his people, it's ready, come, come now. And that's actually been what's been happening in Matthew's gospel so far. John the Baptist came basically saying, come, get yourself ready, come now. Uh, Jesus himself has been saying that. Uh, Jesus sends out the disciples, remember two by two, and then he sent out the seventy. He's been sent saying, the banquet, it come, come now. But what happens? Look at verse 3. But they refuse to come. This is not the response God is looking for. Not the response from the leaders of the people God was looking for. Not the response from the rest of the people themselves that God was looking for. But God is really generous. You've got to get this about God. He's really generous. And he really wants people to come. And so he persists. Look at verse 4. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. See, in the, in the ancient context, um, without cars and mobile phones and stuff like that, messages would have already gone out to tell the people, get ready. But then when, you know, when the fattened calf is slaughtered and the, the barbecue's ready to go, that's when you send out another, a final saying, say, it really is on, it's on right now, come, come immediately. Now, how should have they res- responded to God's invitation reminder? You know, a very simple, yes, I'd love to come, would have been excellent. But what happens, look at verse 5, but they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. Now look, farms can be busy places. Uh, Maybe in the field it was harvest time. And really at harvest time, there really is not, no time, not even for a wedding. And maybe the business, you know, maybe it was the end of the financial year. Maybe it was close to Christmas. Like a farm, businesses can be very busy. Maybe there was very little time even to go to a wedding banquet. And so what's happening with this second round of invitations is that people are now making excuses. The banquet is on. Come, come now. Oh, I'm too busy. 
I've got an excuse. Please accept my excuse. And perhaps, perhaps in normal everyday life, these kind of excuses might have been legitimate and reasonable excuses. Might be. But this is not normal everyday life. This is the king. God himself putting on a banquet. When it's true that the invitation to heaven has come from God himself, and when God himself is the one saying, please come, it's ready, come now. The reality is this is not a normal everyday situation and it simply won't be acceptable to say, gee, I've got a lot on my plate in the moment. Please excuse me. Honestly, I don't think that's really acceptable even if a close friend invites you to a party, right? It's a horrible thing to do that to a friend, but these people are doing it to their king, which means this is way beyond rudeness. This is, kind of, this is, this is leading into rebellion. This is leaning into disdain for the king. And before we go any further in this parable, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll see why in the case, I just want to pause here so that you can get a feel for well, what's going on today. God today is still issuing his invitations. Come and come now. It's ready. Come. And as God sends out his invitations, and as the news of the gospel spreads to all nations... God won't force you to come. He won't coerce you to come. He won't manipulate you in saying yes. He simply is inviting you to come. He's saying to everyone, gee, I would love you to come. Please come. Very generous, very gracious. And today, like in this parable, the same thing keeps happening. One after another, people start making excuses. I'm a bit busy now, God. Please excuse me. Please excuse me, God, I've got something else on. Please excuse me, I just can't make time to think carefully about it right now. It's it's amazing, really. Heaven is going to be great. You're invited to come. God actually wants you to be there, and yet it is in your power to make excuses as to why you don't want to come. Now, in this parable, while some people make excuses and reject the invitation of the king in a very passive way, I'm just too busy, there's another set of people who go a bit further and they are very active in their rebellion. Because when this second invitation is issued, look at verse 5 and 6. Here's the passive bit. But they paid no attention and went off one to his field and another to his business. Here's the active bit. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. I mean, the excuses were bad enough. This is outrageous. And the king, verse 7, was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And you're meant to feel the weight of that, about how God feels. He's angry, he's enraged when they kill his servants. And of course there will be repercussions. And God's response to Israel and its leaders, for that is the context here, his response to them is, I've had enough. And I think we learn something very important here about the character of our God and who he is and what makes his heart beat. So he loved his people. He loved, he loved, the, he loved his, the nation of Israel. But this is Old Testament times. But they kept, spurning him, they kept spurning him. And with Israel, because God loved them so much, he just kept... Their sin was met with this patience 
time and time and time again. He was very gentle with them, very patient with them, very kind with them. He was slow to anger. He issued invitation after invitation after invitation. Patient, kind. But what's revealed to us here is that if you push and push and push with your sin, and you push long enough and hard enough, then eventually God will say, that's enough. I've had enough. And that is what's happening here with Israel. And so he's saying to the leaders here of Israel in this parable, it's time, I'm going to do away with you, and I'm going to have other people come in, just like with the vineyard. And so in the parable, the king sends out a second round of invitations to to other people, to a different people, to join him at his banquet. It's a picture really of God rejecting Old Testament Israel and calling on others to come into his kingdom. And so in verse 8 we read, Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out to the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Yeah, the king is determined to have a party for his son. Very determined. And he sends out his servants to go to the street corners to get the down and outs, to get the bad as well as the good, to go to the great unwashed, the Gentiles, the good, the bad and the ugly. And they all get an invitation. And the wedding hall is filled with guests. And it's a great story, isn't it? It's a great parable. It's a great, it's a great story. Um, God going now to the nations to invite them to come and join his party, the great wedding feast. It's a great story. And it feels like you could just end it there. But often, as with the parables, there's a sting in the tail. There's a sting in the tail. The story doesn't finish there. The sting in the tail is that when God turns up, when the when the uh, when the when the father turns up to the wedding, the, the banquet, uh, the the, hall, the banquet hall for his for his son at his wedding, he sees something that disturbs him. He sees someone who disturbs him. Uh, look at verse eleven. Verse eleven it says, "But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing wedding clothes." He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. The king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Now that's a curious ending, isn't it? That's a curious ending. I mean, what's all the fuss and bother here about not having wedding clothes on or proper wedding clothes on. I've been to plenty of weddings where people wear jeans and I don't see them getting cast out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what's going on here? It can feel a bit harsh or a bit over the top. Why is it like this? Well, let me offer this suggestion. The king has had the leaders of his realm reject him and despise him. He has gone to the down and outs, the bad and the good. But you don't just get in and stay in because you were invited. No, you get in and you stay in because you paid attention to the respect 
that is owed to the king. And he is the one and he is one who was brought in, who was invited, but who never paid respect to the king who invited him by getting dressed up. There's a sense of how did you get in here, son, without being dressed up properly for this? You are showing disdain for the king, even though you are here. And so he is also judged and condemned like the others because this guy has done really the same thing that Israel had done. Israel got an invitation, didn't respond properly. This guy gets an invitation, doesn't respond properly. And so just like Israel, when they didn't respond properly, they were cut off. So too when God issues the second round of invitation to all the nations, to people like us, if we don't respond properly, so what a sting in the tails for us, then we can be cut off as well, cut off into utter darkness. And so the sting in the tail is for people like you and me. We must not think that the gates of heaven are just open to everybody no matter what. If we don't respond properly to the invitation, then we're out too. Which raises the question of, well, what is the right response? What is the proper response to God's invitation? Two quick things to highlight, two. The first one hopefully is obvious. Don't make excuses. If God says you're invited, please come. Don't make an excuse. Don't offend God by saying, I've got more important things than, well, I've got more important things than God in my life. Effectively, what you'd be saying. Don't offend God by saying, uh, I'm just going to delay and put it off. The proper response is to say, yes, God, yes, I'd love to come. And to say that and mean that. If you say it and mean it, God, I'd love to come. You're effectively saying, God, there is nothing more important in life than you and your agenda. I'm not too busy with other things. I'm not going to make excuses. I won't be late. You're the first priority. There's nothing that's going to stop me. I'd love to come. To say that and mean that, in the Bible's words, is, is, is really to repent. It's to stop making excuses and to make him the first priority. This is the right response God is looking for. Notice it's clearly not about being good enough. Because the invitation, notice, went to the bad as well as the good. And the proper response is not just pulling up your socks and making yourself you know, better and impressing God with your good behaviour. No, no, the proper response is to turn your life around and stop having other things more important than Jesus in your life and put him first. It's that change of mind. To realise in the end that it matters. Well, it does matter what I think of Jesus. That is an important question. It does matter. But what matters is what he thinks of, what matters more is what he thinks of me. And what he thinks of me is that I am someone who needs to accept an invitation and get ready by repenting. And if we do repent, his love is so vast that he will have us even the worst of sinners. So the proper response God is looking for are the clothes of repentance and faith. People saying, Yes, I'd love to come. That's the first part of the right response. The second part, though, takes us back to the vineyard. Because remember, God was looking for a harvest. And when he found no harvest, he judged those people. 
There is really no place in God's kingdom for people who will not respect the sun or no place who will not, for people who will not produce its harvest. And we need to read that. If God went to Israel, Old Testament Israel, and said, I've given you everything, what more could have I done? And he looked for a harvest and there was none. We're kidding ourselves if we think that we are his vineyard in Christ, if he's not looking for a harvest from us in due time. Now, what is that harvest? Well, you've been reading Matthew like I have. Okay? He's looking for a harvest of people who have changed their minds about who will be first in their life because the first will be last and the last will be first. He's looking for people who, when other people do something inexcusable against them, they won't just forgive them once or twice, but 70, to, oh, 70 times. You won't even keep count about how many times you forgive people. He's looking for that kind of harvest in the lives of his people. And that's where the rubber hits the road for us this morning. Of What kind of harvest is God going to find in your life? How about I pray that God will find that harvest amongst us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its clarity. Thanks for its urgency. Father, we pray that many people in Wollongong, a flood of people, would hear that invitation, come and come now, and that they would come. And Father, may we not just respond once in repentance, but have that lifelong repentance where we treat you with the respect you deserve and produce that harvest of righteousness you so long to see and so please you in, in every way we can. And Father, we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.